Welcome to the Blockbusters and Birdwalks podcast. I am the curator, Garrett Chaffin Kirai. Today we have a conversation with a friend, Ed Rosa. That's me. Hi. My filmmaking partner and I have a YouTube channel, Toothless Richard Productions, where you can see a number of our short films. Straw Dogs is a film in which uh, David Sumner, played by Dustin Hoffman, and his uh, young wife, Amy, played by Susan George, move from the USA to a small town in Cornwall, England, to this place called Trencher's Farm. And while there, they end up having to fight locals who uh, want what he's got and who don't like him. And it's bloody. And it is. It is. (laughs) Bloody Sam. There's a pivotal supporting character by the name of Henry Niles, played by David Warner. He's a sort of simpleton of the village, but he's got some kind of a heritage where he's menaced children, particularly girls, and all of the male adults in this village consider him a terrible moral and physical hazard. But he becomes a very important triggering mechanism for the story at several key points. When he becomes involved quite accidentally in David and Amy's life, it sets up the home invasion that is the last third of the movie, the mm. conclusive violent sequence. As I watched this movie, I couldn't help but realize he's just Frankenstein. He's wearing the same kind of yeah, clothing. Yeah, green jacket thing, yeah. It doesn't quite fit his arms. Yeah. He is a very tall, thin man, mm-hmm. very much like the Frankenstein monster. Seeing this about David Warner as Henry made me realize the movie balls up as a node, a node of intertextuality. And then I started noticing some other things. In particular, the music by Jerry Fielding, which I think first to last is great music. Some of the leitmotifs that he drops into this piece are very familiar to me. Why is that, Garrett? Well, because I think John Williams picked it apart and used it on Jaws. And then because this is a movie about an outsider entering this small community where he never fits in and they're quite hostile to him. Yeah. And the hostility is centered upon a patriarch of a nasty family. It was completely like 80s movies, which I know you and I hold in high esteem. Yeah. Such as Roadhouse. Yeah. In Roadhouse, Patrick Swayze uh, shows up exhibiting um, uh, a little more machismo than uh, Dustin Hoffman does in this <laughs> film. But it's, it's still the same thing. It's, a, you know, it's, it's about this sort of insular community, although I, I think that you know, Dustin Hoffman isn't intentionally disrupting it in the same way that Dalton is in Roadhouse. The alpha male kind of has to circle the wagons and defeat this threat from outside. I'm glad you used the phrase, circle the wagons, because my consideration of this movie is to place it firmly as a Western. It is set in the then-present of the late 60s, early 1970s. And because it's of its moment, people would generally rope that off and say, well, that can't be a Western because it's not the 19th century. But if you look at the narrative, it is a settler going into hostile territory, trying to integrate himself. That's Dustin Hoffman's character, David. He's got his old lady, that's Amy. And the hostiles, in this instance, are these Englishmen, these Protestant Englishmen, who are all led around by the daddy figure, Tom, played by Peter Vaughn. 
who's a nasty bit of business, very charismatic, oh, yeah. and in every single scene, drunk. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and he's huge, and uh, just everything about him is gigantic. Including the size of his else. family. He yeah. seems to have had a lot of children. Yeah, he's, he's a very prodigious father. This is Dustin Hoffman when he's a relatively new movie star. It's only four years out of having been in The Graduate with a couple of important movies in between. And as I was thinking about that, boy, Dustin Hoffman kicked off his movie career with gusto in 67 after being a journeyman theater performer yeah. during the early 1960s. And his career really didn't let up for 20 years. Yeah. It's role after magnificent role through the 1980s with a couple of missteps. But in general, huge quality work and very influential stuff for which he is celebrated. Does he work in this role? I think he does work in the role. At least what I think Peckinpah was trying to get at in this film. He's very kind of mousy, the antithesis of Tom Hedden. And I think that Hoffman pulls it off magnificently. Peckinpah wants you to hate him. I do. After all, there's never been a kingdom given to so much bloodshed as that of Christ. He's trying to avoid service in Vietnam, and, and I think that while it's never explicitly stated, his aversion to confrontation and violence, the notion that he would go overseas to fight some war and have to fight people directly is anathema to him, especially as someone who is an academic. I hear it's pretty rough in the States, sir. Oh, have you seen some of it, sir? Bombing, rioting, sniping, shooting the blacks. Can't walk down the streets, they say, Norman. Was you involved in it, sir? I mean, did you take part? See anybody get knifed? Just between commercials. David and Amy have hired local people to fix the garage, and we see then a group of laborers. It begins with one man who's proceeding slowly. Amy reforms a friendship with this man, Charlie. And it's made out to be Charlie once wanted her very badly in a romantic and sexual way and that she spurned him, but he hasn't given up his appetite for her. He's made that plain for meeting her again. Right. Through happenstance, this guy Charlie and some of his buddies are invited <laughs> up to help the other guy accelerate his work and finish doing the job. And all four of them have eyes for Amy. And at a certain point, she begins to parade half-naked and indeed in one sequence, memorably going to take a bath, disrobes in front of a window where they can all watch her. Right. This and then throws her shirt down on top of her husband's head, who's her inattentive husband's head. Yeah. To alert him to the fact that she's got needs and he's not satisfying them somehow or other. These men invade the house. They kill the family cat and hang it from his closet hanger. And this spurns Amy into saying, David, you've got to go confront them. And of course, he can't. Instead, he tries to make nice. Be friendly with them. Gives them yeah. beer, offers them coffee. He yeah, cigarettes. Pays them, and they take him on a snipe hunt yeah. to get him out of the house, and a lot of stuff goes wrong while that's happening. Yeah. Well, the centerpiece of Straw Dogs is the rape, which is very nauseating, but in unexpected ways, at least to this viewer, watching it again across some 20 years' time. This happens when David is away on this snipe hunt, Charlie asks to come in the house. Amy lets him in. He takes advantage of the situation, begins to sexually assault her. She submits. So it's this funny and scare quotes moment of her being raped and then seeming to accept and enjoy his sexual contact to then have one of his buddies notice what's happening, push him away with the shotgun and take his turn. Right. Truly and violently raping her. Right. Whereupon David comes home. The house is empty. She's super angry, but she never explains why. He just realizes his wife is now way up at point 10 on a 10-point scale, angry at him. 
Tell me about the rape scene. What is your reaction to it at this age now? I don't want to suggest that women enjoy rape. It's kind of a sticky wicket to try to engage with, but rewatching it this time, because Charlie was so willing to be violent that she was simply sort of submitting to save herself, at a certain point she realizes the, the, the futility in fighting him, but then also being the recipient of this kind of raw masculinity is, you know, something that she sort of has been craving. I know over the many years of this movie's life, a lot of commentators have weighed in on this sexual assault and rape sequence and balanced its various parts in various ways. And among those arguments have been that she wants it. She just wants this butch dude to barrel into her house and barrel into her it's almost gratitude. Yeah. These beautiful young people, him very big, very strong, muscled, handsome, her small, diminutive, curvy, blonde hair, all of these yeah. sort of archetypes of whiteness are right there having like a, a scene. Yeah. And on the other hand, he slapped her around, forced her onto a couch. Yeah, ripped her clothes off. It, it wasn't. And she said, no! she slapped him repeatedly. That's the lasting tone that I take from it now as a father of daughters and as a person who's matured to a certain extent. I know when I saw the movie as a younger person, I mostly viewed the scene as a kind of a triggering mechanism to get Dustin Hoffman excited to then become the violent guy we're hoping he's going to be. Right. That does eventually happen, but importantly, he never knows this has happened to his wife. Right. Yeah, he never actually finds out. She never shares the news. They never speak of it, the assailants. So we're forced to then deal with the fact his turn to becoming a violent person has almost nothing to do with what she has been through. In fact, the inability that he's got to be kindly towards her is so diminishing of the fact she's been traumatized that it's now possible to look at him as, as a terrible guy in that measure, too. Right. He can't recognize that his wife has been through something right. and terrible. It's, it's not like she's not giving him clues, too, because she's clearly, when he comes back in the aftermath of the event and they're like in bed together and stuff, like the fact that his, his wife isn't happy is also not something that motivates him to really do anything. Ideologically, we're meant to understand this is a terrible violation, this assault-turned-rape scene. But by craft, by form... It's more complicated because we experience it intersubjectively. The subjectivity that we share is Amy's position. There's a really complicated temporal design of a previous scene where she and David are in bed together seeming to prepare to make love. Flirting, disrobing, joking, getting under the covers, wrestling. These things are intercut with the way that Charlie is presently engaged with her. And that complicates the tonality of the sequence. She's both escaping into the memory of her inadequate but loving husband while being ravaged by this man who also seems to be pressing different buttons than David that she also seems to enjoy. Right. A scene a little bit later on when they go to the community event at the church, those men, the assailants, are in the back of the room drinking beer. David knows something is wrong. And instead of, of seeing David in the temporal design of her memory, we see the rape. We see Charlie and the other guy. So, again, intersubjectively, we're occupying Amy's position. Importantly, and I want to just emphasize this one more time, David doesn't know this. Yeah. We do. And interestingly, she makes the decision, I need to go. He agrees to drive her home. That's when they run over Henry, the Frankenstein guy. And that's when David says, we have to bring him home, call a doctor, and make sure he's safe, setting up the movie's conclusion. The three editors, among them Roger Spottiswood, who would become a filmmaker in his own right, really played fast and free 
with what she's fantasizing about, how she is escaping, what she's remembering, what she does not want to know, while dealing with the discomfort of her present circumstances, assailed by men on all sides, her husband included. Yeah. I found that really remarkable and complicating, and it made my mood shift while rewatching the movie. I think that's one of the, the genius things about it. Rape is sort of used as a device in film and television a lot to gin up outrage, but in this instance, it's it's used to sort of explore the complexity of their entire situation. It isn't just, I don't know, is that a MacGuffin if it's just something that's used just to make people, right. to, to, to advance the plot? It, it very much is, is an exploration of these other issues that are already at play. It's not supposed to be pleasant. It's not supposed to be easy, but he's willing to to go down that road to force us into considering all of all of these things that are going on. There's the small moment when Charlie's buddy shows up and puts a shotgun to Charlie's head. As I recall the scene, we see it in direct address. We see the shot we're looking down the barrel and then the next shot is Charlie looking up at the barrel and we realize the friend is threatening him first. Right. Amy does not yet know that there's a third party in the room. With the shotgun, the friend waves Charlie off. Charlie signals no with his eyes and nods his head and then is further moved along by gesture with that shotgun. Right. So Charlie is, in a way, symbolically shoved aside or you could make the leap that he's been symbolically assaulted with a weapon. With a giant phallic symbol. Correct. Now, interestingly, Amy's able to shoot not that guy, but one of the other assailants in the end of the movie... She's the one who kills the final baddie. Yeah. So the final invasion needs a little bit of further attention. The setup is that Tom's daughter, Janice, has gone missing. And it's known from a community gathering that Henry was with her. We know from the way the movie is set up that Janice was preying on Henry for affection, which she could not get, we learn, from David. David, She admires. David doesn't really notice who she is. So she takes Henry out into the woods to a barn. They set candles. They begin to kiss. He becomes alarmed when her brothers begin searching for her and calling her by name and grabs her around the neck. Shh, be quiet. Like Frankenstein. Right. Accidentally killing her. Whereupon he eventually ends up at the Sumner household. By that point, Tom has gotten himself terribly whiskey drunk, and he's super fiery and excited, and he is surrounded by his boys and Charlie. They learn because David makes a call to the pub, please send the doctor. I've got this guy Henry here. I hit him with a car, not knowing about the Janice backstory. In the end, Tom and his boys show up with Charlie. They start to lay siege to the house. Luckily, it's a well-made house, a good castle. That's yeah. an important metaphor, a yeah. castle. It was almost like a like a caveman thing, I thought, too. Like, because it's all stone. Right. You know, and I think there was, like, some some animal skins. It was so primal. It completely is its own know. character. Yeah. And we've been taken through most of its public rooms in the course of watching David and Amy's marriage disintegrate. In the end, they are almost aided by the local official, a guy named Major Scott. Right. Who, for a guy who's in law enforcement, has one arm in a sling because yeah. it's been broken or injured in some way. In, in any uh, of Presumably it. by Tom Hedden or right. one of them. And I also thought it was an interesting metaphor for how ineffective the right. law is. His in, arm, read penis, doesn't work right. right. Thus it's in a sling. Right. He seems to calm Tom's men down, but not Tom. And Tom shotguns him to death.
Because everybody realizes on both sides of this confrontation, David and Amy in the house and Tom and his boys out, they can't come back from this and they can't leave a witness. Right, yeah. So the Sumners have to die. Right. No matter what they say and whether Henry is the real cause of their problems, it's not. They have to be killed because they know Tom shot the sheriff. As it comes down... The five men are all dispatched. Tom shoots himself in the foot. We don't watch him die, but we presume that he is bled out. We realize that Chris Causey, the rat catcher, is bludgeoned to death by David, Mm -hmm. who grabs a poker from the fireplace. We realize that Amy shoots the fifth and final guy, who I think is one of the Hedden boys, a driver of a truck somewhere. Yeah, Yeah, he's right. We watch Charlie shotgun... His former friend Scott, the other rapist, right. for menacing Amy because it seems that Charlie and David both want to protect Amy more so than they want to hurt each other. Right. And we interestingly watch Charlie and David scuffle until finally David grabs Charlie's head in a bear trap snaps shut around his right. neck. Earlier in the piece, David asked Charlie and some friends to carry this heavy piece of equipment into their home as decoration above right. the fireplace. Right. Yeah. In other words... David hand-to-hand murders one guy. Amy kills another. Charlie kills another. And David accidentally contributes to the deaths of two other people. David leaves her to return Henry. I don't know my way home. It's okay. I don't either. Robin Wood would talk about the incoherent texts of the 1970s, and he would begin his journey in the late 1960s and carry it forward to Blade Runner. There's a serial incoherence to the movies. They don't come to obvious conclusions, and they leave you for the lights to come up in the theater to figure out, what did I just watch? Right. What has happened What do to I me? take away from this? I think Straw Dogs does that very deliberately, yeah. which leads to the problem of incoherence. If the cultural product you're dealing with can't give you any answers, all it does is ask and explore unpleasant questions and say everything's a mess, you're not in a position to put things back together again better. David is more or less the protagonist of the film, but at no point is he ever the good guy. This is where I live. This is me. I will not allow violence against this house. It's the sovereign self. And because that's been violated by these men, not because they've menaced him earlier, not because they killed his cat, not because they're lazy and put his garage together, not because they're obnoxious. It's because in the end, they finally decided to attack his home or himself. Right. He could just as easily leave through another exit. And it's incoherent. Like, why here? Amy's actions move this thing along. Yeah, there's an interview where Peckinpah was like saying that like David is the heavy in the film. I find myself just angry at David. Amy basically exists as a mirror for him, where he's his inability to be a man in the traditional sense is constantly reflected back to him. And he, um, he doesn't really have the words, despite being a verbose, educated guy. He right. can't explain himself. Well, right, and I don't think that he wants to either. I think he's happy to obscure his deficiencies. He's so incapable of just being even you know, a husband in, in any capacity or doing anything other than just running away and running away and running away. And she always is the one who's taking the initiative. Well, adding some coherence then, using that Robin Wood frame, is the reconstitution of home. 
which can only be reconstituted when this woman, Amy, returns to her ancestral home where her father lived with his possessions still in abundance. Every chair is my daddy's chair. To protect that home and expunge from it all of the bad stuff that she doesn't want to tolerate and cannot live with, including a past pseudo-lover turned sexual assaulter rapist, that's Charlie, all of his chums, and all of the bad guys, the headens from down at the pub, they're taken out in one bloody evening. Yeah. And so is her husband, who she clearly doesn't really have an alignment with, yeah. and he takes with him the enfeebled, monstrous Frankenstein character of Henry, who has murdered another one of the Head and Children. So in one step, you could say that she actually has cleaned house in this village yeah. and removed all of the bad to now reconstitute a home life that is convivial yeah. to the needs of a young woman who wants to be in her homeland and not in America, tossed about by all of the various repercussions of post-World War II America. Yeah. That's gone. So maybe the movie in that sense is an uber-feminist text. Yeah, right. Well, and I think, I, I do, I, I think that... A lot of men's attitudes were kind of shifting in yeah. this time, and I think that for I think I don't think Peckinpah liked what he saw at all, and I think that this film is kind of a critique not of American men, but like almost kind of like a warning to like what he saw as like people as society going down like the wrong path. <laughs> My Straw Dog story begins in January 1996. I was invited with a small group of students to go to Daniel Melnick's house, the only listed producer of this movie, and on the success of this movie became an executive at a studio. I drove my beater of a car up with some folks to carpool. It felt very adult. I dressed up, and I barely had dress-up clothes, and it was the first time I've ever eaten lobster, and I barely knew who he was. Sure. In the middle of the conversation, and this is why it's an important reference point, he received news that Don Simpson, the producer of Bruckheimer Simpson fame, uh -huh. had died of an overdose. But he took a phone call, had sad news, shared this with us, and then offered us dessert and coffee, and we had a nice evening. There was an older graduate student in the group. She was both flirty but then critical, and then laid into him about the rape scene in Straw Dogs. Okay. And he deflected some of her criticism, which to my memory was extraordinarily valid and beyond my kin at that time. I didn't have the vocabulary to say these things, nor did I have the nerve to say it to the person who in who some sense is paid for it. Who just, yeah, right, <laughs> who just paid for your dinner. <laughs> he turned into a Peckinpah story, and the Peckinpah story is that Sam was on a series of binge drinks, which was known to be part of his work yeah. product, and was working on the actor Del Henny, who plays Charlie. Well, hey, listen... You go in that room, and you take her. What do you mean, Mr. Peckinpah? I want you to do what you want. What do you mean, Mr. Peckinpah? And the story went, as Melnick told it, Peckinpah was basically urging him to walk in the room and rape Susan George. Right. To do what he wished as the cameras rolled. Now, I've never met Susan George. I've never asked her these questions, and I haven't gone to look YouTube interviews up where she deals with that scene if she ever has. But the telling that I heard was that crew members became increasingly uncomfortable with the way the director was haranguing his crew and his lead performer for the scene to sexually violate a co-performer, and Melnick had to somehow or other pull Peckinpah off the pack, so to speak, and say, time out, man, you're doing something we can't do. So Melnick took the criticism of this wise, beyond-her-years graduate student who took him to task for writing the check. And rolled it up into a small story about how Peckinpah was an out-of-control alcoholic. Now, as spin, 
That was pretty good. But it did cause me to sit back on my chair and say, my goodness, this Peckinpah man, not only did he produce some of the most violently envelope-stretching movies of the last couple of decades, including The Wild Bunch, which I think is a masterwork, yeah. but he also was a crazy person, it seems, in his real life. Not to make excuses for reprehensible behavior, but I think Peckinpah was one of those directors who was always like looking for truth. Mm-hmm. He he never wanted it to feel rehearsed or phony. He always wanted everything to feel totally real. If there's a rape in the film, you are dealing with something that's uncomfortable and you're trying to put it across as authentically as possible. I don't know how I would direct a scene like that. Yeah. Get out! I put on the history goggles to think about this movie in its context because in the early 1970s, we didn't have multiplexes and we didn't do saturation booking. So movies would open on a few screens in a few cities and they could spend more than a year, if it was a popular title, making it away across the country. All of that is to say that I I looked for movies released in October 71 through March 72 to see where stuff landed because Straw Dogs, you may not know, was a Christmas release. Not on the day of Christmas, but I think the 23rd of December. Merry Christmas. That's right. Merry Christmas, Peck and Paw style. (laughs) Right. Please pass the peppermint sticks. Other movies that would have been in release just then because of this platform system of how things were distributed include... The Academy Award winner of that year, The French Connection. Play Misty for Me, Clint Eastwood's directorial debut with himself as the lead performer. Peter Bogdanovich's The Last Picture Show. And then as we get closer to the release of this movie in December, we find A Clockwork Orange, Polanski's version of Macbeth. Remember, this is just a year and a half, two years after the Tate LaBianca murders up in the Hollywood Hills. We see Dirty Harry, Don Siegel's direction of Clint Eastwood in the title role. Then as we move into the new year, Cabaret from Bob Fosse shows up, The Godfather, and John Waters' exploitation epic in micro-scale <laughs> Pink Flamingos. Right. Classic. <laughs> you were a person up on movies during this period. All of that was potentially available to you in one of the big cities in America. Yeah, give me a time machine. This is Blockbusters and Birdwalks, a conversation between Garrett Chaffin-Kirai and... Ed Rosa. Boop, boop, and you do.